and welcome to Data and AI Talk. This weekly podcast is hosted by WOW AI, a global provider of high quality AI training data. In this podcast, you will learn about the latest AI news, strategies, and trends, as well as listen to the world's top AI experts and thought leaders discuss data challenges and AI use cases in major fields such as banking, automotive, manufacturing, and healthcare. Subscribe today to explore the world of artificial intelligence and data science. And the first episode of the Data in AI podcast will feature Patrick Bangert, the VP of AI from Samsung, and David Cherbuck, the former editor-in-chief of Forbes. They will be talking about user data collection and AI ethics in healthcare, among other topics. Um, great. Conscious of time, why don't we just jump right in? Um, I'm going to go to the uh, to the last set of questions specific to you, um, and I'd like to ask the first about your 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 work today and and the areas that you're focused on and. Um, the accelerator that you've created at Samsung. Yeah, thank you. So um, I work for Samsung SDS, which is short for Samsung Data Services. It's the IT company in Samsung Group. So you might know Samsung as a manufacturer of consumer electronics like phones and TVs. Um, the group does much more than that, uh, but most of the companies do produce some sort of physical device. Um, SDS does not. Uh, we're the IT company in the group, so we run the data centers, we write some of the software, and we do some of the AI modeling. And my team is responsible for the artificial intelligence, where we have two uh, major streams, and one does what we call AI engineering. That is, we create software for other people to, uh, to make models with, and the other group is effectively a consulting uh, organization that actually makes the models um, if you know, our customers don't have the team or the expertise ready. Um, so that's roughly what we do. Um, in the product section, we uh, have a product called Brightix AI Accelerator. It's there to accelerate um, your modeling efforts. So if you think that you have a data set ready uh, and you want to make some AI model, uh, the first question is, of course, what features of that data set are going to be relevant to your question. There's a feature engineering effort. This is typically two to three months um, of scientific uh, labor on your uh, human um, workforce to try to figure that out. Uh, there are many methods to do that. Um, you can stock a small library of books and papers about this topic. Um, we've automated that to a large degree. So you can dump your data set and have the computers churn out the best features for you. Second step, uh, you need to pick the best model. Is it going to be uh, an LSTM or a neural network or a support vector machine? Or how many layers is your neural network going to have and how many neurons per layer, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all these modeling uh, model selection questions come up. Again, we've largely automated this um, so that you can um, dump the right features uh, of your data set and have the computers figure that out. Third question, what are the right hyperparameters? Every algorithm comes with parameters of its own, uh, the learning rate, the dropout rate, and things like that. There might be somewhere between five and 10 uh, parameters that need to be tuned. Um, and if you imagine searching for the right point in a 10-dimensional space um, takes uh, some time. Uh, there are a couple sort of 
ways of doing that. One is manually thinking your way through it. That's the worst. Um, then there's a grid search uh, by which you effectively divide the space into a chessboard and you try each square of the chessboard and uh, you know hope for the best. That is better than manually doing it, but it's not very good. Um, there's an adaptive search capability that we've built, um, not completely by ourselves, you can have it elsewhere as well, but adaptive search is the right way to do these things. It's much, much more efficient and leads you convergent to the right answer. Um, now, in order to automate many of these things, you need to do what's called distributed training. Uh, in other words, you need to distribute your training uh, over several computers uh, to reduce the amount of time. Um, anything that's automated means that the labor doesn't go away. The labor is just transferred from humans to computers. Uh, and so if the computers have a lot of labor to do, you either need to wait for a very, very long time, or you need to use several computers simultaneously to do that job. And that's what distributed training is all about. Um, so we've implemented that. So that, that's our, our four major uh, features that we have in this platform. Uh, wrapped up together, basically, they mean that you can go from data set to model with relatively little human effort um, and in a relatively you know defensible amount of uh, time. It's still going to be uh, macroscopic in, in, in the realm of weeks. Um, so AI is not something that you do from one moment to the next, right. um, but it, it is also not in the realm of years that what you might imagine. Talk a little bit about the, the, the training of a model um, with a data set. Can you give me some examples of uh, what type of applications you are trying to train? Um, and is this for an internal analysis or is this for a consumer facing application in the end? Right. So we train all sorts of models. Uh, some of them are for our internal use. Uh, an example would be scrap detection in our manufacturing facilities. So Samsung manufactures all of its own devices. We don't uh, outsource that, so we own our own factories. <clears throat> so you might imagine that halfway along the manufacturing process, a particular part um, has broken for some reason or another. That's scrap. Um, you want to detect that as early as you can and exit it from the process so that you don't add value to an item that's already broken. Right. Uh, so that's, that's um, in fact, our most valuable model in the semiconductor industry, um, making semiconductor wafers uh, that eventually turn out to be chips um, is a very expensive effort. And so isolating the wafers that got scratched or somehow damaged as early on as possible is, uh, is a hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in cost savings kind of a model. Um, at the other end, um, of the pipeline, for example, you'll find things like Bixby. Uh, if you have a Samsung mobile phone, uh, the application called Bixby is our verbal command and control module. You tell the phone what to do, like uh, make a meeting or book a ticket, and it goes away and does that. Uh, Apple calls it Siri. Um, that's, of course, a consumer-facing natural language processing AI model. Um, so everything in between um, our models that, that we would make, right? Anything from computer vision uh, over natural languages to time series um, where we might do things like forecast how many people are going to purchase Samsung devices, uh, at which stores are they going to purchase those. And on the back of that, we then ship those goods from the manufacturer to those stores 
so that they're ready. Uh, of course, the trick is to get the amounts right. Um, we don't want the warehouse to be full of stuff that doesn't get bought. But on the other hand, we don't want to run out either. Um, so that really then is, is the sweet spot right there. Your background is in that type of process engineering. I, I understand from your biography that you've worked in um, chemical uh, 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 manufacturing processes, um, uh, power generation, etc. Uh, does AI give Samsung just that much more of a uh, of a clear view of the supply chain and of sort of the manufacturing? manufacturing challenge as it gets ready to bring a product to market? Is that the main reason for the internal models? Uh, so yes, my, my background is, is in the process industry. I did a lot of work for oil and gas and, and chemicals before uh, I joined Samsung. Um, and I would say yes, internally at Samsung, uh, the, the primary benefit of these AI models is in fact in the manufacturing logistics area. Um, simply because that is the bulk of what Samsung actually does. Um, so it, man, Samsung thinks of itself as a manufacturing company. Um, and most of the company in terms of personnel and, and costs and so on is on the manufacturing logistics side of things. Um, if, if you think about, you know, a, a physical device, there is some effort obviously expended in designing and engineering it, but um, far more. Uh, financial effort and human effort is is expended in actually building it at scale, right? So we, we make a billion phones. Um, that takes more effort than designing it um, to, to, to some degree. Um, so uh, employing AI to uh, assist with the manufacturing and logistics effort is certainly valuable. Um, a lot of the high-tech innovative um, designing of the next generation phone, we cannot do that with AI, right? A AI is not actually intelligent. Uh, it's kind of a misnomer. Um, yeah, artificial intelligence is not intelligence. Uh, we mustn't confuse that and Hollywood frequently does. Um, so if we try to be innovative and design something better, something out of the uh, realm of current technology, then humans have to do that. Now, I go back to artificial intelligence to the early 80s um, when I was beginning as a tech reporter. And back then it was um, bandied about in, in terms of like decision support systems, um, things like handwriting recognition, optical character recognition, machine vision were established and, and making some headway. But uh, it seemed that the early efforts were particularly on handwriting recognition or, or voice recognition, were very uh, difficult to train. Um, they required a lot of training on the part of the user. Uh, but now you skip forward uh, 40 years or, or 35 years, and we seem to be having a renaissance in AI. What do you think is unleashing that? Is it processing power? Is it the cell phone? Is it the use of the cloud to provide uh you know this type of ai ai processing in the background um I'm, I'm very interested in what you feel is is sort of kicking off this what seems to me to be a renaissance yeah uh, there, there certainly is uh, is a renaissance it, it uh, it's sometimes called the deep learning um revolution 
So I think it's most, uh, so some of it's down to processing speed, yes. Um, we now have these graphical processing units, the GPUs that we didn't have 30 years ago uh, that make the processing a lot faster. Um, and uh, speed then therefore allows you to train larger models. I see. Right? So um, when, when we talk about uh, making things faster, we actually have no interest in actually saving time. That's not interesting. Um, speed is interesting in the sense that it allows us using the same amount of time to train bigger models. That's where the benefit really comes in. Um, and so the, the models relating to what, what you spoke about, like handwriting recognition or speech recognition, those models now are just a lot bigger. Um, and therefore, they become better um, at doing that. Um, the second benefit is uh, scientific. We've made some headway, and that, that's what the field called deep learning is all about, some headway since the 1980s in the mathematics of AI. We have novel algorithms, we have novel modeling methods uh, available that are uh, in fact a step change better than we had in the 80s those two are important but the third is much much more important that's the real lever here and that is the increased size of available data because uh, gathering more through sensors or through capture uh, how, how is why is that why are the data sets increasing in size well, yes, we're capturing more. Um, we have also digitized more than was available before, right? So in the 1980s, human knowledge came in forms like books, uh, right? Now these are available as digital books, right? So they can be processed, things like that. Um, data that used to be available as, uh, you know, paper photographs um, are now digital photographs. They can be processed. Um, the equipment to uh, record those things like digital cameras um, or digital voice recorders um, are now available that, that were not in the 1980s. Um, and so we're starting to acquire data at a rate, digital data, right? Structure, somewhat structured data and, and structured in the sense of it's been digitized, it's, it's recorded in, in files and stored, um, it is now available at, at, at a volume that is unique in, in history. And so that can be processed and, and learned from like never before. And that's really um, one of the major failings of AI in the early days, right? So when people went around and said, oh, the neural networks, they can solve every problem. The neural networks could have, but we didn't have the resources to train them on the computing side and we didn't have the data uh, to, to train them either. Right. So you can imagine uh, a human student, uh, if you imagine, a, you know, a human 10 year old um, who has to spend uh, 12 hours a day in the cotton fields um, and he's given, you know, 30 minutes uh, a day to study. And during those 30 minutes, uh, the student is provided with no materials, no, no books or, or a teacher or anything. How much can that student truly accomplish? Right. Now you put that student into an eight hour school, uh, eight hour a day school and provide good learning resources and the good teacher, that student can become a genius. That's the difference we're talking about with, with AI here. We have simply a, di a different ecosystem. Got it. 
What about the collection of, uh, of user data? Um, there's been a lot of uh, noise on the regulatory and the legislative front to, uh, lack of a better term, begin to uh, vet or uh, analyze algorithms in case they have any type of built-in bias or um, other inherent flaw. Uh, are there are there examples of data capture on the part of, of users that we're not aware of? I mean, is it just simply as we drive our vehicles or we have an x-ray taken, does our data generally get pooled anonymously to drive these type of models to teach them? Are we, making, are we making the systems more useful the more we use them, I guess, is the question. Uh, so by and large, yes, your data is being collected. Um, so as you use social media platforms, as you drive your car, as you use your phone, uh, that data by and large, yes, is being recorded um, in one form or another and is then being used to make that product better. Mm -hmm. um, uh, better, um, obviously, uh, from the side of its manufacturer. Um, and in that sense, uh, a better, the, the, the first definition of better is always in the direction of monetization, right? So the manufacturer of the device or the maker of the software uh, ultimately wants to, to earn money themselves, right? So that may not, not be congruent to your personal individual definition of the word better. Um, it may not be better for you. Um, um, so there's a conflict of interest here. Um, and uh, governments and regulators are trying uh, to bridge that. Um, and that's particularly relevant to people who don't belong to the uh, normal majority, let's say. Right. Right. There are various, various groups that uh, will deviate from the normal majority, be it by skin color or by ethnicity or by heritage or by age, uh, by health conditions. Um, by disabilities, uh, by the geography they live in, by the language they speak. Uh, there are all sorts of uh, groups that will become or have already become marginalized in one way or another. Um, so you, 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 can, you can very easily imagine people who don't speak English um, obviously are uh, much more limited in anything concerning computers or the internet than from people who do speak English. Um, for obvious reasons, and you you could you could make an argument for many many other groups. So, um, in the United States, we're particularly prone to speak about African Americans being uh, biased against. That is one example, and it's certainly very relevant um, and important. But that is by no means the end of the, that discussion, um, and that's just bias against human groups. Um, it, there are systems where bias is not the problem, but the entire use case uh, could be construed to be a problem. So personally, I think, for example, having a, an autonomous drone outfitted with weapon systems and an AI that it, with, with the permission to fire whenever the AI thinks uh, it's identified a target, um, that is morally objectionable and has nothing to do with bias against people, uh, against groups of people, this is biased against humanity in general. <laughs> um, so there are various issues of ethics um, 
and various issues of data privacy. So, for instance, um, the autonomous driving community um, is driving around neighborhoods uh, anywhere in the world and recording uh, visual data, street data, etc., um, which will obviously eventually record your house, right? Um, do you want it to have your house being recorded in, in you know, company X's uh, autonomous driving software? Um, you know, and the, the the scale between wanting that to objecting to it is, of course, a gray area. Um, and European governments, for instance, have decided that uh, you can object to it. And then the company will have to remove the images relating to your home from that database. You know that. So just as the EU passed that right to be forgotten, um, that I can get myself removed from search results, I can also get my personal imagery taken down or, right. or whatever. What is the compliance challenge like for a global company? Uh, in, in the United States, we don't have a data, a national data privacy law like the GDPR. Uh, most companies that operate internationally try to comply with every regime or, or, or body of law in the countries they operate. Um, in this country alone, for a data breach notification, there are 50 different states with 50 different laws. Uh, are we in danger of, of hampering the advance of, of AI through overregulation born from those Hollywood fears of Skynet or the drone that will have weapons and make a decision to shoot me? Right. Um, yeah, it's a it's a very important and complex debate. So first of all, the Skynet um, completely unrealistic Hollywood fear mongering. Um, uh, we are. It, I personally believe that uh, the sort of Skynet type uh, machinery is not possible on fundamental grounds. Uh, but even if you believe that it could be made, we're certainly very, very, very far away from making that, right? So to your audience who might be afraid of the Terminator, this is not within our, our lifetime sort of a technology. Right. Um, now, over-regulating there is a little bit of danger, of course, of uh, regulating it to the point where the degrees of freedom are so diminished that the value is also diminished. Yes. Right. But I think the bigger danger is in the global complexity that you pointed out. Uh, everybody has different regulations. In the US, there are 50 different regulations. And, and then we have the uh, other regulations worldwide, and they're all different in some way, shape or form. Right. So. I believe that the best way to cope with it on a sort of global corporate side is to default to the strictest system. Right. Um, what, what you don't want to do is separately comply with each legal code individually. That's a nightmare. Right. Um, in that case, the, the, the cost of it is too high. And of course, these legal codes are not static. They evolve over time, right? So just studying up on what everybody is doing and what all their changes are is 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 a is a is a nightmare for a company to keep up with so just simply to default to the worst case strictest code uh, which in the current scheme of things is the european code uh, that is economically the right thing to do got it 
Got it. Yeah. I no, I I agree. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you got interested in 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 this field and and what sparked your interest in it? Uh, so when when I was uh, in school, I was always interested in how the world works. So that's why I took a physics degree at university. Um, and I learned that uh, physics is really a conversation between experiment and theory. And how it works is that experiment gathers data and theory tries to interpret that data, put it in context, come up with a, with a model, which in physics always meant a formula, an equation, mathematical uh, language model. Um, and uh, I, I became a theorist. Um, so I always saw that it took uh, a very long time and, and somewhat uncoordinated uh, genius spark moments to come up with these things. And so I figured, can't we use this newfangled computer technology that was emerging to help uh, with that? And that's, of course, exactly what AI is. AI tries to fit a formula, a prototypical formula, right? The prototype of the formula is called neural network or support vector machine or random forest or something like that. That's the that's a prototype formula. And then the algorithm fills out that formula by determining the numerical values of the parameters in the prototype. Um, and so what I was wondering is how do we systematize this, this art form that we call physics? Um, and well, the answer to that really is artificial intelligence, because that takes the empirical data, creates the formula, proves to you that the formula is more or less sensible. Um, and of course, uh, since then, uh, the world has been filled with computer generated models that work really, really well. They don't explain in quotes the world as does physics because AI always gets it wrong a few percentage points at a time. But if you can answer 98 or 99% of all cases with a formula that's been determined by computer, that's extremely fascinating just on its fundamental grounds, but it's also extremely practical and useful in everyday human life, right? I'm as a, as a practical person who tries to, to help other people, I'm not so much interested in the 1% case. I'm interested in a 99% case. And AI does that. Artificial intelligence seems to be um, a, a term that's dogged the field for some time, uh, going back to Alan Turing and the imitation game uh, uh, or the Turing test. Uh, but, but going forward, well, let, let, let me take a step back on the question. What do you think is the most successful example of AI in practice? Um, would it be something like the Alexa? Was it the chat bot or, or the speech recognition of a Siri or a Google Assistant? It seems that we've made huge advances in the adoption of, of, of these technologies and, and and these formulas um, without really being aware that it's AI. I mean, as one person said to me, autocomplete in a search box or in a word processor is AI, um, if you want to get down to it. Um, you know, what do you think is, has had the biggest impact in, in, in the adoption and acceptance? Right, so um, there, there's, a, there's a difference between 
general AI and uh, narrow AI, right? And um, so narrow AI is all the models that do something extremely specific, right? Like recognize handwriting, do autocomplete when I when I type, uh, recognize my face when I want to unlock my phone, uh, recognize my fingerprint uh, for the same reason to unlock the, the laptop. Um, it, it, pricing of airline tickets, um, you know, suggesting what products I might be interested in purchasing on online shopping channels, things like that. Those are narrow AI. Um, they've been deployed, they've been extremely successful, both for their makers in terms of economics, as well as for their users to make to make their life simpler. Sure. Um, one AI technology I use several times a day is a GPS, right? It, you generally don't don't think of it that way, um, but the algorithm that tells me where to turn left and right, that's a form of AI also. Um, so very, very useful. Um, now, none of those, please note, have anything to do with language. Right. Right. Now, let's go for the language side. Um, the quality of chatbots today is not very good to to be kind um completely useless might be a better description okay. uh, now if you go to a website of um very many manufacturers of goods like cars and otherwise you will find that uh, immediately a chatbot pops up at the bottom corner uh, and offers help um you know, if, if the audience here hasn't done that before, I, I challenge you go to a website like that or a couple of them and, and try to ask some pointed questions, right? Um, right, if you're sort of like the old Eliza program from you know, the early 70s where it just right. asks you, well, tell me how you feel about that. Uh, right, so those, those tools are extremely good at emotional answers, right? How are you doing today? Oh, the weather is great. The responses make a lot of sense. Um, if you ask questions that you know involve uh, you know either arithmetic or knowledge of the world, uh, you will find their limitations immediately. Right? If you ask, for example, I have three pears and four apples. How many fruit do I have? You're unlikely to get the right answer. Um, if you go to a manufacturer's web page and you you ask. You know factual questions about the products you probably will not get an answer that makes any sense to you um, that's the quality we're at so passing the Turing test is one of those things if all I do is small talk then yes the chatbots do quite well um, but if I am inquisitive about do you know the world do you understand basic facts like gravity and weight uh, relative size of things right. um, you know do you know that for example uh, a, a cow it cannot be 20 feet long right so I, I if I give you a picture uh, where there is the behind of a cow a building and then ahead of a cow the AI will conclude that you have a 20-foot cow right <laughs> A human will immediately say, well, there are two cows, obviously. Right. Yeah. So things like that, if I present the algorithm with, with examples like this, whether I do it verbally or, or visually, 
you immediately discover these limitations right. um, and fail the Turing test, right? So Turing himself did not give us a manual of how pointed to be with our questions during the half hour that he allowed us to have that conversation. Um, but I think now we know we, we have to be uh, a lot more pointed with those questions. And currently, we, uh, we don't know of a good way to combine knowledge of the world with the very sophisticated natural language processing algorithms that we have so that they learn from from speech but don't really know things right right um so an, another example is i'm sorry nlp is just identifying audio signatures right uh, it's looking at the i don't know the waveform of the words i'm saying and it compares it to a database and says well that sounds like he just said the word sounds like exactly exactly and this this is the other law of the system, it learns from the data it's being presented with. So for example, modern NLP systems are trained uh, based on the uh, writings on the internet. Uh, now we of course know that a lot of writings on the internet are not true. Right. But many people write many things on the internet. Um, and the NLP system will learn all of this. Um, <laughs> So it may suddenly have opinions that are just simply incorrect. Right. I remember uh, Microsoft released uh, uh, some sort of Twitter bot that just sort of deteriorated in its uh, behavior the more it yes. interacted with people. <laughs> so yes. It's an example of garbage in, garbage out. It, exactly. I'm conscious of time. Um, we're, we've run over. Is there anything you'd like to add? Um, uh, so I, I have a little bit more time if, if you want to go oh, on a bit longer. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, I would, I would love to. Um, one area is, is sort of the automation of, of, of tasks and an example. Well, w w let's take an example of that drone that is suddenly given the autonomy and make a decision. We don't trust it to do that ethically. We don't want, you know, the device making a, a life and death decision. But if we go into, say, medicine, where AI shows a lot of promise um, in help, helping a physician or guiding a physician through a patient visit, um, as the physician is taking the notes and listening to the complaints, uh, the the system may say, "Have you thought about this? Or have you thought about that?" In radiology, in particular, it's been used. Um, you know, they've 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 trained it by showing the system thousands of pulmonary embolisms and saying, "Now go identify pulmonary embolisms." There's still a factor where it gets it wrong, where it will either make a positive diagnosis or a negative diagnosis. It'll either miss the pulmonary embolism or it'll detect one that's not there. Is there a point where that error rate or that slight percentage of inaccuracy is going to become tolerable? Are there applications where we just simply can't tolerate that? And there has to be a human check uh, on the diagnosis or the output of the system. Yeah, uh, this, this is a very important 
question for many practical applications of, of AI, right? At which point of accuracy is it practicable to use this technology for real? Right. Um, uh, now, there's a very interesting book uh, by the title of Noise, uh, published by Daniel Kahneman, the, the Nobel Prize winner of economics, where he goes into discussing that uh, human systems are noisy. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a certain fault tolerance for that. Um, and the fault tolerance that we have for computerized systems is a kind of completely different order of magnitude. And this is a very interesting societal development um, that I think is important to look at. So for example, um, on average, uh, not accusing any particular medical system of, of anything, but on average, doctors get the diagnosis right 70% of the time, which means 30% of the time, almost one third uh, of the time, they are not correct about the diagnosis. Um, computerized systems, uh, especially if they specialize in one particular disease, are typically 98, 99% accurate. So only get it wrong one to 2% of the time. So the requirement to say, we need a human check in addition to that is actually getting a better system checked by a worse system <laughs> is is that an improvement right so purely statistically speaking that may not be a good idea right. now in terms of generating trust on part of the patient involved right in a particular individual case of course you've got a real life human being sitting there being worried about their health um, then it makes, of course, a lot of sense for the human to look at it and for the human doctor to agree and to explain to that patient what that diagnosis means. But nonetheless, the likelihood of being right is a lot better with the computer than with the human. Right. Um, now, the human, of course, can do things that at the moment the computer cannot do at all. For example, explain why. Right. If you come into the doctor's office and the computer tells you, you've got cancer, period. That's not very helpful, right? Now, what the human doctor would be able to do is to say, you've got cancer and here's the reasons why. And now here's the stuff you need to go do about that. Um, right. And at the moment, computer health systems are not capable of doing that. They're not capable of, first of all, explaining why the diagnosis is what it is. And they're also not capable of explaining what you can do about it. Right. So um, it necessarily needs to be a computer human hybrid interaction that actually gets the problem solved. And I think this is where the real secret lies. Um, doctors and patients need to become familiar and comfortable with the fact that AI systems are now a helpful tool around the doctor's office in just the same way that a stethoscope and a scalpel uh, or a microscope um, are useful tools around the doctor's office. They do not substitute the doctor. They help the doctor in getting the job done. That's about it for you know, the top questions. Um, anything that you'd like to add that I haven't asked? 
Uh, no, I think this was a, a very good conversation. Thank you for taking the time. I really uh, enjoyed it. Um, you're, you're obviously a very smart at, at, uh, at this topic, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to uh, to meet you and, uh, and learn from you. Thank you. Same here. You asked some very insightful questions. Thank you so much for tuning in. To keep yourself up to date with the latest AI news, follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. We hope to catch you on the next episodes of Data and AI Talk podcast.